going to uh, get going straight away. And uh, we can keep it, um, obviously, this, 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 as a discussion, we can keep it kind of informal, just natural. If you want to say something, please do. Um, and um, I'm just going to try and keep the conversation flowing. I've got a few questions. And obviously, we're going to speak about our expertise, our perspectives on financial inclusion. And, and obviously, thinking about Africa as specifically and see what, uh, obviously, financial inclusion is a huge issue here. But it's a, it's a global issue as well. So one can talk about um, that as in, in, in more broadly. So, um, and, and the other thing that I've obviously noted, I, I, I'm connected with Sven and Paul, and I know your analytics background, but Murli, you also have a, um, a strong analytics background. As a matter of fact, maybe we can start with you, where we, we, we maybe each of us just quickly introduce ourselves and, and uh, maybe it's a starting point there, and then we can tackle some questions. So please go ahead, Murli. Terrific. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, pleasure to be part of this um, session. So my name is Murli Bulaswar. Um, I am the head of U.S. Consumer Analytics for the Citigroup or Citibank. And in that capacity, I'm on a mission to think about how we could, as a bank, build deeper relevance and engagement with our customers on a real-time basis and understand them in the proverbial customer segment of one. That's my mission statement, in effect. Uh, my career has spanned the intersection of where data meets strategy meets change over the last 20 plus years. I was, I was in the insurance sector for the longest time and uh, started initially in consumer banking and now have been back in the banking space with Citi for about two years. Oh, fantastic. And I see you've been at the Boston um, uh, Consulting Group as well. Spent some time with them as well. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, so uh, I was the chief science officer for AIG for many years, and when I left them, thought I might do something a little bit uh, less structured and different. So, worked with BCG and with a couple of startups uh, for a few years, and I'm still invested in those startups. And then I uh, thought I might uh, make the leap back into. The big corporate world, uh, what's interesting and challenging about the big corporate space is the scale, the scale yeah, of yeah. the access to data and the scale of impact that one could have. Now, yeah. that whole concept is also being debunked when, when you've got firms that have been in existence for two, three, four years uh, that are creating their own data assets and business models and are getting valued at hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So, so maybe I didn't quite get that right as of yet. <laughs> Incredible opportunities. I'm sure we're gonna dig into that as well, especially on the financial services side. Um, uh, Paul, I just wanna quickly go to you. Um, so obviously we, I've been at also at Juma, I think probably before you were there, um, and, and my role there was just briefly for a year, Chief, um, uh, I was the, the data office, chief data officer and also looking at data intelligence and so forth. And I think you've got pretty much, you are into that kind of role, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah. hi guys, my name is Paul Welpton. I'm currently the chief information and analytics officer at Jumo World. Uh, and that, that encompasses um, all of our data and information, um, the entire universe there, so data science, data engineering, but also our credit um, and, and business pipeline. So all of our actual financial product design and the delivering our portfolio management. Maybe just a little bit of a background on what Jumo is. So we're a full stack technology company that brings financial services to the mass market. So very much, the, I, I guess the easiest way to describe it is the Intel inside in, into the into. Um, some of the biggest partnerships in, in, in Africa. So we sit in, in between very big financial um, institutions and the mobile network operators and provide a full suite of products to their customers. Um, you, you specifically, and I think very relevant to this chat, using uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yes, yeah. That's, that's, and, and your experience also at Standard you've been there for a, uh, for, a, for a long time and also analytics and customer pricing. So it's all very relevant to what you're doing right now. That kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, very, very, yeah, very good um, experience there, Sandbank. I think the biggest difference, I guess, uh, it's the exact opposite of what Murli is experiencing. So coming from a big corporate where the focus was very large transactions specifically. So ahead of customer pricing, I was really looking at very big transactions um, and not a lot of volume. So it's way more depth than width, if you would call it that. And at Jumo, it's the it's exact opposite where 
we've done a hundred million loans now in five years. So it's it's very very quick and 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 fast turning around, uh, but not as deep. So obviously smaller smaller ticket sizes and a completely different challenge. So very exciting to be on that side of the spectrum. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Fantastic. And I want Jimmy to also do well. I, I think I'm still a, a little shareholder still there. So I'm rooting for, and we want success stories here in Africa. And we, we want to create these kind of unicorn businesses. So I'd love to dig into that. Um, Swim, so uh, Vodafone, like, well, you, you're right. Currently, um, you've been at Vodacom eight years and, uh, and now currently at Vodafone. So just give a little bit of background in terms of your experience. And it seems like very much analytics and customer value management and stuff like that as well. That's right, Jock. So um, at the moment, I'm uh, the head of base growth and retention uh, marketing for Vodafone. Um, and basically, uh, the transformation that I'm busy leading there is to drive uh, fully automated AI-driven uh, marketing. Uh, so a lot of work around personalization and recommendations. Um, in terms of the actual work we do, it's uh, to uh, cross and upsell our products and services to our existing customers. Uh, turn in retention management, uh, and then also a lot of work around uh, loyalty and rewards programs. Uh, yeah. Before I joined Vodafone, I was at Vodacom. Uh, I was responsible uh, for uh, AI and analytics. Um, so I started up the big data team at Vodacom. Um, and yeah, I've been uh, obviously for the last two years or so focused very much in the marketing space, using AI um, to drive marketing. Uh, but before that, I've also worked on various uh, AI use cases from uh, mobile network investment optimization uh, to the customer service space, uh, you know, call center routing optimization problems, uh, chatbots and conversational agents, and also fraud management. Um, so very passionate about this topic. There's, there's some, <clears throat> there's, just listening to you guys, there's so much to, to talk about here in terms of real world applications. Clearly, you guys have lots of experience in that space as well. Uh, maybe just a little quick background on myself before we get, get into questions and the topics as well. So I've been, um, about my whole career has been building AI. I did my PhD in machine learning AI in the 90s. Um, and uh, then soon, I actually did quite a bit of research in, in, in terms of just applications, chemical engineering, even did some stuff where we built neural network models of brain disorders. Got a book published on neural networks and psychopathology. And I'm currently writing a book and almost pretty much done on democratizing AI to benefit everyone. And that ties in with my massive transformative purpose around how to shape a better future in the smart technology era and how can we use AI and smart technologies to, to actually create that. So it's it a lot of thinking around those kind of things as well. But earlier on, for me, it was, um, it was all about the applications. How can we unlock business value, societal value with AI and uh, my first AI company was uh, Season Systems. Uh, I, I, that was about 14 years. And uh, initially we did kind of everything in terms of applications. So I was also financial service, the Sunlum Santoms, a lot of customers here in South Africa, insurance and, and, and bank, so banking customers, retail and so forth. But we went into, we decided South Africa is obviously mining and, and we went into minerals, metals mining and manufacturing. So I did quite a bit of work over probably two, uh, a decade and a half in that area, and then eventually sold um, Season Systems to, um, to, Gen <clears throat> to General Electric in 2011. So it was a great experience, and not, not only obviously building that out internationally, spent quite a bit of time across all the continents. Uh, we had a distribution channel across the, the world in terms of just taking our software and, 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 um, and delivering solutions on that. And then worked for General Electric, spent quite a bit of time in the US as well, um, and also in Silicon Valley and Chicago specifically, um, because we, we had our asset management unit there. And we, we had people all across the globe, in India, the UK, in South Africa, and the US, developing the software and stuff like that as well. So I've been in that space. So it was a wonderful experience. And then I joined Juma for a, for a year. That was a fantastic experience because it exposed me to the mobile network um, uh, uh, area specifically and working with Vodafone, Vodacom and M MTN, Airtel, Tigo, all these kind of things that Paul will know extremely well. Um, but learned about the applications there. If you don't have any credit, uh, any history, how do you build it up with uh, obviously 
looking at the the, um, the wallets wallet behavior thinking about the, um, and then obviously the call direct records so much information there you can combine that uh, opportunities to unlock value uh, but then after that to short circuit everything yeah i founded uh, another company called portix logic it's a engine for business which is part of the portix group now and we are currently in financial wellness and health, and health wellness we've got also some trading solutions that we've developed um, so some very exciting stuff that's all relevant to our top discussion today. Um, so fantastic. So let's dig into it. So financial, let's quickly talk about financial inclusion. So um, I think the, uh, the, the topic is how AI will impact financial inclusion over the next decade. So as we're sitting here, 2021, a lot of states, it's a big question if you think about that and think about um, what will probably happen over the next decade or so? What will realistically happen? And, and I'm actually, I've written a book now on that where I'm thinking about the future and from all perspectives and all industries. But if we zoom in on financial inclusion and we can talk about financial services in general because I think you will you'll probably get disruption from all sorts of angles um, and even the tech giants are coming into play here. But Let's just zoom in on what's your perspective on how AI will impact financial inclusion over the next few years. So Murli, let's maybe start with you. Um, what is your perspective there from um, New York? Thank you, Jacques. And it's um, you know really quite an honor after having listened to each of your experiences, I realize even more so what elite com company I'm in. So it's a it's a pleasure. Um, so when I think about the role of AI, and I'm going to abstract a little bit and, and sort of put it in the context of advanced analytics, using data more intelligently on a real-time basis to better understand a phenomenon and then to be able to predict it, ultimately to be able to influence outcomes as well. Um, if I think about the U.S. market in its own way over the last 25 years, there's a couple of firms, one in insurance and one in uh, consumer banking, that made a massive, massive mark in disrupting the lending slash credit card sector, as well as the auto insurance sector. And those firms are Capital One and Progressive. And I happen to know both of them very well because I did work with them in, in years past. And what they did, which I think is very telling for where I expect the world of advanced analytics slash machine learning slash AI to take us, is to get to this notion of de-averaging. So, um, you know, where I think the problem of financial inclusion runs typically against a brick wall is that we tend to cluster customers in two broad groups of uh, their potential and their risk and their financial health and, and therefore their value as a customer. I fully expect that where AI is going to have a big mark is in continuing to de-average our understanding of risk. So getting to this notion of uh, there, is, there is no such thing as a bad customer or a bad risk, there's only a bad price. So literally, you know, at an extreme, getting to that notion of segment of one. That is the big, 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 um, you know, phenomenon that I expect will, will, will be part and parcel of the innovation, number one. Number two is um, not thinking of risk and behavior as being um, exogenous or uncontrollable, but rather building more interaction and engagement with customers in a way that influences outcomes, in a way that preempts the likelihood of uh, a customer going down a spiral of, of debt and not being able to get out of it. So yeah. being able to not just predict, but influence outcomes and engaging with customers uh, to take mitigating actions such that uh, banks can continue to support them before, before they get themselves into financial um, trouble. The third piece of it to me is this notion of timeliness and, and using more um, eclectic data. So historically, if, if you think about the US, um, a lot of the, 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 the decisions, whether frankly on the insurance side or on the 
credit side have been made on uh, credit bureau. And the, and the problem with credit bureau is it's sort of a uh, chicken and egg where if you don't have enough of a history, then uh, you don't get access to credit quite as easily. And, and in order to build history, you need to get access to credit. So uh, where the world is turning to is, is recognizing that while that data and that history from a credit standpoint is important, there's a lot more that is knowable about customers um, that, can, that can help connect to a deeper understanding of risk and that can expand the access of risk of, of, of financial products and, and, and credit to a broader base of customers. And I think that we're very early stages of that um, globally and, and even frankly within the US as well, despite how developed it is. It reminds me of this notion that we tend to over predict innovation in the near term and tend to under predict in the long term. And last but not the least is this notion of digital, which is uh, I expect that the cost of delivering these products um, and, and the access to credit is going to go down dramatically over time because you're not going to have quite the same degree of a fixed cost overhead um, and that infrastructure that, 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 that can be sometimes a little bit of a noose around some larger firms. And I expect that the role of that will diminish over time and, 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 and that allows for the prices to drop as well. So those are some of my thoughts on how I could imagine AI transforming the financial services sector in the next decade. I'm very much aligned with that. I, I, I would love to respond to all of those points, but I think you're absolutely spot on. I just want to give everyone an opportunity. So Paul, what's your, what's your perspective? How do you think about it? Obviously, you're working on the in emerging markets uh, as well. Yeah. So um, Africa, I know Pakistan. You're looking at Indonesia, Southeast Asia as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks so much, um, Murli. That that was really interesting to hear that perspective. I think it's something that we live and breathe every day in, in our company. So very very interesting to to hear those perspectives and and how aligned we actually are on that. I think just tagging on to to what you said there. I think um, one thing that we definitely see is that. Um, there's no such thing as, as inherent customer risk is what we believe. Like every customer, as, as deep as you get to personalization, there is a, a product for them. And getting to product fit is really what, what it's all about. So you can serve as many customers as possible if you can get to that product fit. I think the, the one thing that we truly believe is that pricing specifically is not an output, but an input. And if you think about traditional banking and specifically traditional lending, you would kind of um, develop your cost stack. So what's your cost of funds? Where's your, your fixed cost going to sit and eventually get to some sort of a return on equity margin and price at that. And, and, and as being an ex-head of pricing for, for a large bank, that's how we used to do pricing. Where in the emerging markets and specifically with financial inclusion, when you start thinking of pricing as an input and how that could influence a customer's behavior, it becomes a very powerful tool to change product fit. So the best example of that would be agricultural lending. So um, if, if there is a news of a drought coming in a specific country or in a different area, usually what a credit um, team would do is to say risk is going up, so let's minimize our exposure. So let's not give these customers the same kind of level of, of, of exposure they used to have and increase the price slightly because we've got risk-based pricing because we think there's going to be a drought. And then what happens is the drought happens, the customer now has a smaller um, facility to actually get them through the year and it's price higher so he defaults and your credit model gets a tick and says yeah we got this right but the customer is kind of down and what we've seen is like turning that around and actually when you see the stress in a customer trying to drive price down continuously even for their highest risk customer gives you an amazing outcome where a customer under the stress is actually the one that needs a bigger discount so when we when we talk financial inclusion that's really like how deep do you want to go and not not formalizing or not focusing on lowest risk, highest reward, which I think was kind of where the entire world was at for, for the last 20 years, is to see how do you minimize risk for the biggest return. I think the other two points that also tie in with what Merrily said for me is, is the first one is um, unit economics. So when we talk true financial inclusion, we, we, we need to, you need to get to a fully digital space where you're leveraging the cl cloud and everything digital as far as you possibly can. Like the unit economics of, of most traditional financial institutions mean that anything under 10,000 uh, or, or let's call it a thousand dollar loan um, is, 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 is not profitable. And if you start looking at the real big markets, so Jock, you mentioned Pakistan, one of the markets we're in, if you cannot make a profit of a $5 loan um, or a $20 investment, you're not going to be able to really financially include like 90% of the, the, the base, which is, which is really a, a very, very important part of, of the equation. 
So I think that's that's a few things that we've been really focusing on, focusing on actually enthusing and going as deep as you possibly can. And then definitely, um, I agree with Murli, it's the approach of, the, to, of, of how you um, use AI. I think the last point for me is just, I think AI and FinTech and a lot of these companies are uh, associated with disruption quite often. Often, So we hear a lot of great success stories of how big industries get disrupted. But it, it, it's, it's something where I think it's not always necessary. Like um, collaboration is, is probably one of the most powerful ways where we can get to specifically financial inclusion. If I look at the African continent specifically, trying to disrupt a, a, a um, uh, existing market, they would mean we would target the same customers, go for the same small piece of the pie and trying to kind of get more um, uh, value from those customers, which would once again be the low risk, high profitable customers. But collaboration where you've got very strong institutions with cheap balance sheets, you've got big distribution channels, and then using tech to kind of go to a new asset class that doesn't exist is, is I think, what is key. So I really like to see a lot of the new fintechs coming up in a collaborative way, not looking at the biggest player in the market and trying to take them out, but rather looking at big banks and big institutions that's been around for 100 years and collaborating with them to, to financially include. Uh, Paul, that's interesting. In terms of new asset classes, what, what do you suggest from a financial inclusion perspective? Any, any specifics on that? Well, for, for, for me, I mean, what, what I mean with new asset class, Jock, is it's really just a, a segment of customers that are unattainable to any of these traditional businesses, right? So just from a peer unit economics, like if you can get to 100 million customers and we're talking a seven-day $20 loan, that's something that a big bank, I mean, if, I think, I'm sure merely you sitting in Manhattan Thinking about a, a $10 seven-day loan is something that's that it's just not on the cards. Right? But if you do that for 100 or 200 million people across the continent at a 30% ROA, it becomes something big, right? So it's, it's asset classes where we don't have to compete with traditional banks that are already there or any traditional player where you can actually open a new pool of customers. And for me, that's the real definition of financial inclusion is can you get to those parts of the population that is actually not served instead of trying to just move customers from um, existing platforms? Fantastic. Swain, what, 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 what's your perspective? Will you, in the mobile network operator with all that rich data, how do you think about things? <laughs> so, so I suppose I'm slightly outside of the banking industry. Uh, so probably talking more from a customer's point of view. Uh, um, but I think you know, maybe the first part is, uh, I think digitization is key, right? So um, I think dig digital is almost made for AI and AI is made for digital because the two just go so well together and if we really want to um, want to use AI at a large scale then um, you know we really need to do it in a digital way um, and, and that's how I believe we'll scale it uh, but if I look at specifically financial inclusion and uh, at the unbanked population um, I think there's two uh, use cases that stand out for me uh, one is uh, very practical uh, amongst uh, the unbanked population there's still in some areas, challenges around uh, formal documentation, so identity management, right? And I think this is where digital identity with the use of AI techniques like um, facial recognition combined with biometrics and creating a digital identity that's widely accepted between financial institutions and banks uh, becomes really powerful um, you know, as AI technology to drive uh, financial inclusion forward. So I think that's one thing that we'll probably see within the next decade and hopefully sooner rather than later um, and then I'd say the second thing is really around affordability. So I think one of the big customer needs amongst unbanked people is uh, remittances, right? Uh, the ability to send money uh, back home, um, cross-border for migrant workers, uh, that sort of thing. And um, especially for smaller amount remittances, you still see that fees make out uh, a, a large portion um, you know, of the transaction value. And I think that's really where AI can play a big part in reducing uh, banks and financial uh, institutions cost base so if you take uh, ai within the customer service environment you can definitely move towards combined with digitization you can move towards things like chatbots etc that reduces the cost base and then that should obviously uh, hopefully find its way back into fees um, and and i think those are two really practical applications um, you know that i that i think we'd see uh, you know hopefully sooner rather than later yeah oh, awesome um that touches on uh, next topic and question that i want to quickly ask here if, if you think about artificial intelligence there's so many different use cases in terms even with when we think about financial inclusion and, and and all of that um clearly you can use ai within the 
the first of all, we know if you connect to lots of data, if you instrument the world, you, you get more data um, and you can mine it and you can get a 360 degree view of the customer, etc. But I think something like, for instance, and Swing, you talked about chatbots, but if you think about intelligent virtual assistant functioning as also a, 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 a way to communicate with the customer, trying to understand their needs, but then also is a way to capture and get information that you can also mine, that you can, can mine in collaboration with other data that you also have available. So it's almost like a sensor in the one hand, but it's also a communication channel. Um, I think it's probably super untapped, but it, it would be interesting to, to just hear your perspectives on that, on that specifically and your own experiences and strategies around that, tapping into that, and then also referencing what does it mean from a financial inclusion perspective, even unbanked, can you actually reach them? You need probably a smartphone, um, the kind of infrastructure needed around that type of thing as well. So Murli, let's start with you. Yes, um, thank you, Jacques. Uh, I think your point of um, thinking about data more expansively is a very, very powerful one. And why that is important is at the end of the day, if you're really trying to get to timely relevance um, at a customer segment of one or close to one, you've got to be able to understand the customer at that point in time in their situation in ways than ever before. And that's the power of AI. And that's critically linked to Paul's point about uh, going to cloud computing and being really able to think of data in much, much more broader ways. So a few things that uh, we are doing at, at City is number one is we've made sure that we thread the customer experience across all channels so that the customer is experiencing us as a unified firm. And as simple as that sounds, yeah. historically in large institutions, if you've had an interaction in the call center and then you walk into a branch, uh, the, those interactions don't typically speak to each other. And so what we're doing is not only tapping into the data on mobile engagement or uh, app, app based or online, as well as a call center, um, as well as a physical in-person interaction. What we're doing is we're stitching that together and trying to draw deeper relevance and understanding. And that requires the ability to do natural language processing and to translate that text into meaning both in terms of the sentiment and in terms of the actual words exchange. It also means that we've got to build the ability and we have been to, 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 to think of vision and image as data as well to draw meaning from that. So computer vision and deep learning related to natural language processing and then stitching together every interaction to be able to build that timely relevance so that we could either we could impute what's on your mind as a customer and then next time you log in that's the conversation we're having or uh, if it is more of a, a crisis situation we're actually proactively reaching out to you uh, via digital channels or other channels to engage on an issue that we see that you you're signaling to us so uh, from from a um, large institution perspective um, I think it's really sort of cutting across those channels and products um, yeah. in ways that historically haven't happened to get a 360 understanding of your customer to build relevance and engagement. To what extent in the U.S. with Citibank and some, are you are you getting that right to stitch it together? Because I, I find here in South Africa and, and we have, we've been doing quite a bit of work for some of the major banks, retailers. And it's, it's like they still struggle to, to put it all together. And sometimes they've got these kind of broker channels and they don't have access to the actual customer data in a proper way. And, and, but but in, in the US, how do you experience that specifically? Is, is, is there some banks that's getting that right or is it more the disruptors that's doing it from, from the ground up? From um, I think that the plumbing is actually starting to be built quite nicely across many institutions and the raw materials for that are actually getting more and more ubiquitous. Yes. I think the bigger challenge is how do you separate signal from noise? Right. So uh, there's a lot of data that's getting thrown at you. 
and yeah. it's it's it and it's easy to sort of overinterpret the meaning from that. Yeah. Um, and in our efforts to build relevance to customers, um, do perhaps quite the relevance in a non-positive way, perhaps is what you could end up having. So, uh, I think the bigger challenge is not the data flows necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but it's sort of that uh, intelligence on the other end of that to say, so what do I do now? How do I do it? And when do I do it? And how do I then take that feedback loop and create sort of an iterative design of experiments type approach to make it a continuous learning um, uh, culture and approach? Because as this data comes in and as you see an opportunity, um, there's no single answer or you, what the next action one should take isn't very obvious. Yeah. So creating that iterative loop, I think is the bigger challenge and making sure that you're not separate, you're not confusing um, uh, noise for signal is, yeah. is, is really the critical piece. From a technology standpoint, um, being able to sort of stitch together the data, the raw components are getting more and more ubiquitously available, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, Paul, just I'm curious now, from a, even from a Juma perspective, um, because obviously you can use AI in various places, and I've seen how you do this with risk detection or affordability and those kind of things. But I, I'm curious on the interaction side. There's so much. There's a touch, big touch point. There's a lot of information that can get right there, um, and I'm not exactly sure where, where Juma is right now in terms of tapping into that piece and to what extent are you making it more kind of AI enabled um, and tapping into that kind of data that's been generated as well? Because that yeah. kind of serves your purpose uh, in terms of what you just said, in terms of just bringing to understand the user and bringing a product and solution to them and price yeah. it for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's such a great question, Jock. And I love the way you, you, you framed it earlier when you said, the, you're going to get the cost benefit of cleaning up a call center and you kind of do a chat box. You also get such great signal from an individual customer. I think for us, the, that is the, the ultimate goal, right? Like if you, can, if you can reach a customer directly, it'd be great. Unfortunately, and you'll know better than anyone on this call, like 95% of our customers don't have smartphones. Right? So you're dealing with a very difficult way to kind of in, in, enhance, which is which, which, which in, in the beginning of my career at Juma was quite challenging to think about we all understand that you want to mine some of that additional information, but how do you get access to that and kind of put that the, those two things together? I think the uh, approach we took now is 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 basically very similar that you would do with a normal chatbot, as an example. So where you use your cost efficiency and kind of match that with 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 getting some more signal from the customer. For us, it's really about looking at any sort of very complex customer behaviors that you can can analyze, and then the by, by not having the voice of the customer, you've got two options, right? You can do surveys with the customer or you're gonna to have to do some really hard yard focus groups to then get your quant and your qual merged together. So I'll give you a practical example is the way a customer goes through their screen. So let's say there's five or six or 10 screens before you get to the new loan. The speed at what a customer does that, the amount of times he goes in and out, back, fails, trying to kind of borrow a million dollars, then he tries a thousand and eventually gets to 10. Like all of those kind of interactions, obviously those patterns are very important then understanding the why behind those patterns is what we're really trying to do. So we've, we've cracked it just to understand and segment those customers into very, very granular level to seeing those kind of individual behaviors. And it's all non-verbal or non-actual kind of comms, right? It's, it's just a customer's behavior on your platform, which has become quite rich and you don't need partners data to do that. But then getting that match with some sort of qualitative information, we actually understand what's going on here. So a customer that keeps going and getting stuck at a certain space or keeps asking for a million dollars on a on a dumb phone in interface. You kind of like you have to start segmenting them with some sort of qual. So it's been a, a very interesting challenge for us over the last two years. Last two years, but I think it's 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 exciting to see how you can actually match those two. And having a, a good enough sample set with with very simple surveys or, or focus groups, matching that back to a hundred million um, data points is actually quite powerful. So it's definitely a bigger challenge than in the in the smartphone world where customers yeah. have got access, but definitely the same principles um, hold true for us. Yeah, fantastic. And to what extent are you guys still uh, uh, tapping into the call direct records, the mobile network type of data as well? Because when I was lost there, we did quite a bit of analysis, but it was not completely utilized properly. So mm. that's obviously a big source of information because that's giving you supposedly real-time information, transactional information, 
even if it's aggregated, but there's a lot of info there as well. Yeah. Are you tapping into that? Yeah, it's very, very big data source for us. So, so I think our um, things are, are, are quite similar from, from back in the day. I'm sure you'll, yeah. you'll recognize quite a bit what we're doing. But the, the big difference is as we've now got to 100 million loans, we've been layering that data richly. So starting with, with mobile network information, so GSM, if you want to call it, voice, and like real-time interaction with customers, then you get transactions from the wallet, and then it really becomes all about behavior and loan data. And, and for everyone on the call, you guys would be very aware that having a, a real deep training set of data to train on is very important. And that's been one of the big focuses for us over the last couple of years is making sure we've got the deepest training set that you've actually tapped into all these segments that you try to see. So we've been layering our data quite extensively, like starting with the core and making sure that you, as a customer stays on your platform, you learn more. So there's no, there's no customer for us where his first interaction and his 16th interaction with the platform that you have the same information. You have to be learning more about who this customer is at every interaction. Otherwise, you can never see separation from a risk perspective. So definitely the fundamentals from the day that you were there still there, but it's like now building onto that to make sure that information is getting richer and richer. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, Sven, so I, I know you are, you've got also specifically that personalization experience. You talked about offering custom experience and and also digital mobile first bank of the future and those kind of things you want to talk about. But what is, what is your perspective? Because even from a mobile network operator, that customer engagement and how you can tap into that and the types of data that you've got available uh, in terms of offerings, what is your what is your perspective on that? So, um, so I think we've obviously as uh, mobile network operators, we've got uh, very rich data sets, right? So there's a lot of interaction data there. And, uh, but it, it's also very important, obviously, one of the big things is to um, is to actually work with customers' permission and consent, right? So especially in Europe, we see GDPR, which is kind of the gold standard when it comes to, uh, to dealing with customer data and customer privacy and, and permissions. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, as a company, we kind of, uh, we've adopted those principles and those gold standards across, you know, all of our operations. So when you've got that detailed, uh, low-level granular data uh, of customers, it's very important that you that you obviously uh, treat it respectfully and in the right way. Um, where we have customer consent, we are able to do amazing things, right? Um, so when it comes to personalization, I believe that every customer deserves to be treated as an individual. Um, you know, and we can create real personalized experiences for customers. I know Muli also talks about the segment of one a lot, or uh, you know going down to that, that specific customer um, uh, level. And, um, and, and we've done that across various uh, aspects. So I suppose probably the easiest place to do it is across offers. So you can take your whole product set uh, that you have of all of the services and products that you offer. And you can put those together with a price in a, in a personalized solution for every customer, right? So you do a combination of things and, uh, and using, uh, using AI, um, I mean, that's quite easy to do. Uh, but we want to effectively um, personalize the whole experience for our customers. So if you if you look at um, app journeys as an example, the way customers interact with our app journeys um, and how they prefer to see those journeys, uh, we can personalize those as well. So things like dynamic creative optimization, creating different uh, images for different products for different customers, those are the sorts of problems that we work on. And, and we've really seen great, um, uh, great results from, uh, from personalizing more. I suppose the the challenge we have is that there's various decision points in order to deliver a personalized experience for customers. Um, and what we found is if you try and do everything at once, if you try and personalize offers, you try and uh, you know personalize the time, choose the right time for the customer, the right channel, uh, and also the creative and the copy. Uh, if you try and do it all at once, it's it's too big a task. So you know it's really a case of breaking it down into smaller problems. Um, doing some POCs, uh, experimenting with things and then scaling them and then bringing the system together in an automated way. Yeah, yeah. There's so much, so much to unpack there. Um, so I, I just quick, let's just go into think about um, challenges as well. What, 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 are the, what is the biggest obstacles that's preventing the banks from deploying these, just tapping into the potential of, of AI? We know it's on so many different levels. It's obviously on the data level, there's so much to unlock there um, and just stitching things together. Um, what, just to give you an example, some of the financial wellness and health wellness solutions we're building, we are connecting to so many different types of data sources. Say in health wellness, we connect them to health risk assessments. 
clinical measurement data, uh, the medical claims data. Um, all of that information is important also if you think about financial wellness because that also affects health wellness and, and vice versa as well. So we, we're connecting to employee data um, and other things as well. And then it's about mining that. And then we build up a kind of a wellness profile of this particular individual so that, you, so that it can inform the backend intelligence to be relevant in that moment, in that conversation. Um, and and uh, so important that personalized interaction. So for us, that intelligent virtual assistant as part of this whole application is, is such an important um, area of engagement. And if you think about other things like these mental health issues as, as well, and, and how to deal with that, which is more kind of quali uh, uh, qualitative as opposed to quantitative things like clinical measurements and stuff, how do you bring it all together? Um, so I, I can see some challenges and obstacles, and we are building now platforms where we're bringing all it, everything together and building it up from scratch. But if you've got a lot of legacy, if you're looking at, say, Citibank, there's obviously legacy Moodle. So how do you move from, uh, what is the kind of obstacles that you specifically deal with in, in, in that kind of environment? And how do you, uh, what can one do to actually overcome that? Goodness. Um, that's, that's, that's a, at a deeper level. So how do cultures and, and, and firms and people evolve is the question that you're really asking, Jacques. Um, yeah. I, I'd put it in three things. I was, I was taking my notes here as I was thinking about this. Number one is, um, culture. And, um, and what I mean by that is, um, we as human beings tend to be victims of our own success. Um, our natural inclination is to be uh, expert-oriented, not, not to be more yeah. dynamic and sort of agile and learning-oriented and growth-oriented. Not that we don't like growth, but it's just that when it comes to our careers, we tend to lean on what has worked for us in the past yeah. and, and try to extrapolate that into the future versus uh, challenging our own assumptions and recognizing or understanding to what extent is that foundation also shifting. So that's probably the, the, the biggest thing. And look, at the end of the day, when you think about AI, and I don't care which firm, uh, which industry, but if it's a sizable firm, you're talking about the what and how of decision-making is going to change. Yes. The questions you ask and how you solve for them and how you make decisions is going to change. That means that people's jobs are going to change. True. And that means that their identity and their sense of self-worth and their confidence uh, and comfort with uh, making that leap is also affected. It can be positive. It can also not be positive. So that's a massive, massive, um, um, you know, I'd say consideration when we think about the pace of change. Um, the second is, I would say, um, uh, uh, imagination is um, in order for this to really kind of um, uh, take off on scale in more um, uh, established institutions, that ability to sort of reimagine what the world should and could look like, that ability to start with a clean sheet versus, you know, the beauty of many, many of the entrepreneurial efforts is they start without that bias. You know, they don't start with that, um, uh, I'm going to use the word baggage, but it can be both positive and negative. And, and I think Paul's going to speak to it in just a moment because he'll have some wonderful perspectives on this. Um, and then the third thing, and this is also equally critical, I think, is uh, going back to what Paul was also alluding earlier, is when you think about expansion, um, you know, you could get a very good uh, return on the on equity on that margin. So you're it, it's a, it can be a phenomenal return, but if you think of it in sort of pure, how much does it actually deliver to your earnings as a percentage, it can be pretty small. So it's almost a mindset shift around how you should actually think about that segment and making it profitable. And you have to actually focus on the profitability, not the profits. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a shift that typically in, in larger organizations, while there is sort of good intention, um, it's, it's hard to get that mind space of 
senior leaders, I think, to 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 sort of uh, switch gears and 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 sort of frame the opportunity and the potential in slightly different light. Uh, and so you end up, and and I'm not talking about any particular institution here, but the 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 bias is to end up fine tuning what you're already doing for the most privileged of customers that where, where there's an appropriate amount of scale yeah. versus thinking about that expansion. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's uh, awesome. I, I fully, fully agree. <laughs> uh, Paul, what, what, what's your take? Yeah, I, think, I think a really good, good question, Jock. And the, the point on legacy systems, I think it's one that always comes up. I think it's the, the, the rate of change of technology at the moment is, is getting quite scary. So, if I listen to to the, the, my two colleagues here on the on the call, like from both of you guys being at very big institutions, like five years ago, um, being in a bank was scary because it was big legacy systems, and you were seeing like AI and all of these systems kind of get get really big adoption, and thinking, okay, how am I going to turn a hundred or two hundred year old company into this? But even now, for a company like ours, Jumo being five years old, like that massive advantage of starting it from a from a from a blank page, like legacy. And that baggage you're referring to, Muli, it, it generates pretty quickly. So I think you've, you're spot on where having that ability to see into the future where this is going is, is becoming very important because playing catch-up is just not possible anymore. Like the rate of, of change has definitely increased. So there was a time where you could wait and see what the technology does and this is where it's going and then play catch-up if you had enough dollars to kind of get yourself there. But it's so scary at the moment where like by the time someone catches up, like it's completely changed again. So data processing is one of the craziest ones for me. Like the things you've learned, third normal form data warehouses, like it doesn't exist anymore. There are people that studied it their entire lives that a PhD on how to optimize a data warehouse. And then I mean, it's, yeah. it doesn't exist in the world today. So I think that rate of change is, is making it, it quite difficult. And, and the ability for any organization to, to move fast. So once you see the opportunity, I think, the big organizations are really good at seeing what needs to be done, right? It's like they know what needs to be done. Like they're very, very smart people knowing how to do this. It's can we get out of our own ways and actually do that before it changes again? Because if if you if it takes two, three years to kick it off and get the initial kind of plan altogether, you might be too, too late. And we've we've even as a as a kind of startup started experiencing some of those growing pains as you get bigger and serve more customers. That it's something to be careful of. So I think it's definitely dropped one of the biggest challenges is keeping up with the rate of change and then looking forward. I, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I remember well, even the last decade or so helping customers, even when I was at GE, even at CSAN, but definitely at Cortex, doing AI digi uh, digital AI-driven transformation for companies, uh, the Industrial Data Corporation, for example, and there's many of these frameworks, um, talks about, uh, um, obviously, it's, it starts with you, the strategy will actually start with the business value drivers of the business as well. You want to obviously create, you don't need to, you need to create that story, but people, processes, um, and, and the technology, the data, all of it is very important elements. And you need to say, how do I move from a state where I'm optimizing all of those kind of pieces. Um, and and, and, and as, as you say, Paul, I think in a world where things are changing so quickly, probably in all the, those kind of dimensions, the moment you put in this AI solution, it's gonna affect the other task. It's maybe gonna have a downstream effect on other people and processes as well. So you've got to think holistically about this. And there's obviously the ethical, trustworthy side of things as well, the privacy things. There's so many things to take in consideration. Um, but anyway, so yeah, lots of different <laughs> obstacles. Swing, what, what, what is your, uh, from a Vodafone perspective, you obviously deal with legacy and things like that as well. Um, can you move that ship faster? What, what, how do you disrupt in that space? Or how do you move quickly? How do you uh, think about being agile? How are you guys trying to do, to, to, to do that? Absolutely, Jock. Look, I think um, the legacy systems will always be a challenge. Uh, and I think that's really where digitization, um, you know, and digitizing the business comes into play. Because once we move more into the digital space, you know, to, we, we use newer technology, new systems, et cetera. And then um, to do AI becomes a lot easier. Um, I, always, uh, I always say that, you know, I would rather take a 20% accurate model, but with an 80% execution then take an 80% accurate model with a 20% execution because it doesn't matter if the model is 80% accurate. If I'm not executing on it properly, I'm not going to get the benefits from it uh, in any case. 
And what I see is, um, you know, we had to make the shift from uh, re-engineering processes and redesigning uh, customer journeys around AI. And once you start doing that, then I think you get the true benefit of AI. Um, so, so that's really, I think, one of the big obstacles. And in order to do that, you really need to buy into it. It's not just starting a data science department and putting a few data scientists in the corner and then trying to put a model into a broken process. It's actually redesigning your whole business and the way you do things. Um, so, so I think that's, uh, that, that's kind of the approach um, that we try and take as well. Um, and, uh, and I think that's kind of one of the obstacles that a lot of uh, organizations face. Uh, it's not really going all in on AI. Uh, obviously, you do it in a responsible way. The great thing about the work that we do is it's highly measurable uh, and we can do experiments, right? So we can try stuff at a smaller scale. We can figure out whether it works uh, and then we can really scale it and, and we can make it big. I, I, if I just think about all these legacy and corporates and, and what, what I currently experience, we live in the API economy, plug and play. It's, it's, it's like legal blocks. And... And when we make decisions, we do it super, super quick. And it reminds me of um, when CSIN, my first AI company that I sold to General Electric, just that experience from going from where you control almost every piece, the whole platform, everything, and then going to a corporate where you, you stack and things move. Mm. It's almost like there's different, you can just see they're trying to be quick, but, but they can't. They even had Eric, um, the guys from Eric Reese from Lean Startup, and they, they're trying stuff. So, I've experienced it in a corporate how difficult it could be to, to, to actually change the ship. And, and really, you talked about the culture and all of those kind of things, imagination. And even if you've got all of that to execute, that's now to Swing's point as well. Even if you think about AI-driven solution that you put in place, execution is absolutely, that's what it's about. How can you, can you, can you actually do something with this? Um, and uh, so, it's, so, it's, so it's actually, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, uh, I, I'm just fortunate now in terms of what we're building now. We're putting all the pieces very quickly together. We can move very quickly and adjust to customer needs and, and bringing customer sources uh, in external ones. And just in terms of partnerships, the way we partner, suddenly we've got access to this kind of data and we very seamlessly bring it in. And I think you're going to see more of these kind of digital players that's going to move very quickly, um, utilizing with even with collaboration, lots of different types of data sources, provider a better solution for, for the customer. And, and, and its speed is so important now. If you've got a magic wand, the next question here, so probably last one, we've got only a few minutes left. What, um, and we think about, obviously the frame here is financial inclusion, so it's financial services. If you think about the world uh, where we're living, what, what, what kind of, you've got a magic wand, what would you like to see um, that look like? Um, and uh, just from your perspective, what, what, is, what is your, what, what would you like to, obviously you can frame it back to say each of you and your environments that you're working. So obviously with Citibank, if you've got a magic one, what would you like to see? But then also thinking about that more broadly, um, what we'd like to see in the world in terms of, uh, from a financial inclusion, from a financial services perspective, and also thinking about how smart technology can support that. So Murli. Goodness. Um... <laughs> It's, it's really sort of a, uh, frankly, an extension of the themes that we've already discussed. It's this notion of um, understanding customers and their financial needs at points in time and being able to not just understand and predict and serve, but also to be able to engage in ways where we could make them more systematically um, intelligent in their financial choices. So kind of creating that cycle yeah. of uh, predicting and understanding, um, but then also being able to engage and influence outcomes in a way that is symbiotic, that's where I'd like to go versus predicting to try and sell something without understanding why or by thinking of behavior as being exogenous. Yes. So I think really kind of making that a closed loop interaction um, that is uh, highly relevant at specific points in time when a customer has specific needs um, and through that making it um, the proverbial segment of one, I think would be a, a, a thing of uh, beauty because then 
that 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 financial net will be cast much much wider and essentially reach anybody and everybody when they need it not necessarily always at the price that they want but at least giving them access that's market dynamics yes, yes that's right <laughs> okay paul what do you say you've got only a few minutes left yeah i'll be i'll be brief i think i think it was uh, michael porter that coined the the term creating shared value being the kind of the, the 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 real organization is going to make it. I think if I had a magic wand, it's really getting fast forwarding into that world where where all organizations get to the point where they know the customer needs to win. There, there should be no such thing as a grudge purchase. I think if you think about the carrot or the stick, like you mentioned earlier, a, a credit bureau that that stick of not paying and the consequences. In my mind, like AI is the is the real thing that with everything you've already said, guys, like segment of one and all of that personalization gets us to the point where it becomes about the carrot. We, I don't want to lose access to this product because it's real time. It's for me. It's for Paul. And I've got share value. Every time I do something which is great for the company or for the shell of that company, it's share value for me. That to me would be the ultimate way of using AI where it's not... It's, it's not creating value in a skewed way for any particular party, but it's really, truly shared where people can kind of leverage their own financial identities. Absolutely. Sven, what's your, what do you, what's your perspective? So um, I think I, I definitely have to say that uh, I spoke about digitization quite a few times and I think that's really uh, like if I, if I had a magic wand, right, that would be it. It would be that everything would be digital because I think that would make it a lot easier for all of us. Um, I think definitely in the future, we'll see more things being mobile first, uh, extending to wearables as well. Um, and, and then obviously AI first, right? I think that's kind of the, uh, the ideal world. And, and then it, it ties up with all of the themes, like Murli said around personalization as well. Now, I believe that uh, in an ideal world, every customer will be treated as an individual, right? So we'll really understand the needs and wants of every customer and then we'll address that, uh, both from the solutions that we offer, but also the experiences that we offer. And um, they really get rid of inefficiencies. So, you know, where we've got parts of the value chain that do not necessarily need to be there or they don't work as well as they should, or where we're carrying legacy costs from systems, et cetera, all of that should disappear at the end of the day and it should be value for customers. Um, so I think that would be an ideal outcome. Oh, absolutely. I think you guys were brilliant. I, I just want to maybe just say, um, I, I, I absolutely agree with all of those kind of comments towards that question. Um, if I think more broadly as well, I would love to see a world where um, that's probably more decentralized, where, where people are more empowered, where you can even monetize your own data and, and services. We've got everybody, their own AI agent, um, where that's looking after them, um, where you don't necessarily have these big tech, tech giants or corporates that's manipulating the data, or at least utilizing your data for their benefit. We can spread a little bit more. Um, obviously, we you would never get a, uh, a world that's, that's, that's equal. You want to reward, um, um, obviously, positive contributions to society and, 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 and people that's creative and, and all the best that capitalism is offering but I think we probably need a, a little bit of a balance uh, as well so and, and hopefully as a society as humanity will get there and in the book um, uh, democratizing AI to benefit everyone got one chapter dealing of talking about the beneficial outcomes uh, for humanity and I'm actually proposing there a massive transformative purpose for humanity um, and there's 14 MTP goals that's linking to the SDGs um, as well and, and, and the other thing is ideas is around, can we create a, a AI-driven decentralized type of platform that, that's, that's really helping individuals on individual levels and even communities and, and make the future more local human and let smart technology support us um, on that level, on a, on a level of one, on a, family, on a family level, community level. And then you've got this network of communities connected in the world um you still can have countries and stuff like that but 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 i think there's i would love to see kind of decentralized technology with ai and smart technology coming together and, and providing that kind of solution where it's it's just um beneficial for more people um love to see more people benefit from ai and uh and especially in financial financial inclusion i think technology can make a big difference 
Guys, this was awesome talking to you. To you. Uh, we over time now. Um, it's uh, love to engage in the future as well. Um, the, the input here was brilliant. So well done to the organizers here, Africa Payment Club. They did a great job. Um, and it was fun talking to you guys. So thank you very much. I hope you have a fantastic day, weekend, and I uh, hope to speak soon. Thank you. Yeah, it a real pleasure. Thank you. Seriously. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank bye -bye. you. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye.